important concept here. The utilities profit more when they build more. That is the fundamental truth of the U.S. investor-owned regulatory system. The more you build, the more you make. For nearly 100 years, most U.S. states have provided electric utilities with monopoly service territories, including many large investor-owned businesses. In Maine, however, these large and foreign-owned corporations are providing last-place service and reliability at above-market prices. The legislature recently passed a bill to transform these private companies to consumer ownership and to open the grid to more innovative solutions to address affordability and the climate crisis. Representative Seth Barry, House Chair of the Maine Legislature's Joint Standing Committee on Energy, Utilities, and Technology, joined me in July 2021 to explain how consumer ownership could prioritize service, reliability, and clean power. I'm John Farrell, Director of the Energy Democracy Initiative at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, and this is Local Energy Rules, a bi-weekly podcast sharing powerful stories about local, renewable energy. This episode was originally published on ILSR's Building Local Power podcast in August 2021. Seth, welcome to the program. It's great to be with you, John. Big fan of all your work. Well, I often ask guests when I start our conversations kind of what has motivated them to be interested in the energy sector. I feel like the issue that you're working on, which is kind of around this concept of ownership of the transmission grid in Maine, was probably more thrust upon you from what I understand of of the different challenges that have come up and the complaints that consumers have had. But did you have an interest or a history of working on energy issues before this became such a central issue in Maine? I did, actually. I'm 52 years old, uh, grew up in Maine, and came of age during the 70s when energy was uh, very much talked about. You know, for somewhat different reasons, climate change was something that a few, a few people were talking about, but, but relatively few. It was the time of peak oil and the OPEC embargo, and there was a lot going on with renewables, as well as a lot of concern about nuclear. We had a power plant here very close to me, maybe 20 miles away as the crow flies, uh, which there was an effort to shut down. I participated in that as a 10-year-old. And I, I think other abiding interests for me that led me to this, and it really intersects with all three, besides energy, I'm also very interested in social equality and economic equality and spent 20 years in public education in large part for that reason, huge believer in the transformative value of education as well. And then closely related, of course, democracy and just the, you know, having a very strong democracy. I spent some time as an intern in, in Congress as a young person and was very interested in you know, the democratic process uh, from an early age. So for me, the issue of customer control, consumer control of our monopoly energy utilities is really a place where all three of those things intersect. I think for me, the overriding concern is the climate catastrophe that, that is upon us and that we need to take immediate action to prevent. But right there with it is, is uh, economic equality, you know, how we make this transition in a just and equitable fashion, and, and also democracy, you know, because th- these decisions will impact all of us and we should all have a say in them. So obviously this is all very closely related to your work. It's been great to have ILSR as a partner in this effort so far and looking forward to what comes next. So speaking of what comes next, let's, let's, or before we get to what comes next, I should say, let's talk about what's been happening in the last few weeks. So it's been in a way, a little bit of a roller coaster in Maine. So the legislature passed and then the governor vetoed bill number 1708, which would have created 
the Pine Tree Power Company. So this is the consumer-owned replacement, as you were kind of alluding to, for the private utility Central Main Power, or Versant, I guess it is also known. Could you explain why the legislature felt compelled to act and to intervene with the sort of the status quo here of the private ownership of the utility grid? Sure. And and we do have two utilities, actually, two large investor-owned utilities. Um, one, Central Main Power, which is owned by Avant Grid, which is itself owned by Iberdrola, based in Spain, but a huge multinational. And the other, which is a mid-sized utility, is, is Versant. Versant is recently formed. They purchased a, what was formerly Emera Main. Versant, interestingly, is owned by a company called NMAX, and NMAX is owned by the city of Calgary in Canada. So we have, a, in this case, a, a municipal governmental owner who is owning and running this utility as a for-profit. So fascinating kind of melange. But by far the larger utility is, is Central Main Power, 640,000 customers, give or take. And Versant has another 160,000 or so. So these two utilities together, however, have, have really failed Maine. And, you know, Versant is a relatively new owner, so we can't blame them entirely for it, but they're, they're not doing great so far. They've asked for a 25% rate hike most recently, really dragged their, their heels on solar in a number of ways. And we've seen that from both utilities. Central Maine Power has been the name of, of uh, the larger utility since the early 1900s. And, and the, the two together have, have really especially resisted efficiency and, and rooftop solar and other distributed renewables. You know, I saw that when I first came into the legislature back in 2007. And we've been fighting them on that ever since. You know, they've been the, the 800-pound gorilla. They almost successfully repealed net metering, actually did successfully repeal net metering under a previous governor. And then we managed to restore it when Governor Mills uh, took office back in 2018. So, you know, this constant battle over the efforts of, of folks to, to have a little bit of, of local control through things like rooftop solar and efficiency. And then a big, stepping back further, just an atrocious job of, of doing their job. Uh, the, the basic things that we expect of a utility, you know, you keep the lights on, you keep the bills low, you answer the phone when the customer calls. They have failed to do any of those things well. In fact, they ha we have, the as a state, the worst reliability in the nation, bar none. The, the, that means that the longest and most frequent outages, right? The worst reliability. So they're not keeping the lights on. We have the 10th highest rates in the nation. So they're certainly not keeping the bills low. In fairness, we, we are restructured. So some of that is the competitive supply market. And it's hard to disaggregate the rates in, in comparing state to state. But you know, more than half of our bill is simply the delivery, which is all that they're in charge of. So they've and that, that portion of the bill has increased and increased. So 10 times lowest reliability and customer satisfaction. Are, are the customers happy? Absolutely not. Worst customer satisfaction in the nation for CMP. Three years running, in fact. That's on the JD Power survey, which is the industry recognized standard for customer satisfaction. It's affiliated with Consumer Reports, and Versant, third worst in the nation. So this is there's 142 large and mid-sized utilities across the country, consumer and investor-owned, and we have the worst and the third worst in the nation. So there's no question that the people of Maine are fed up with these utilities and their poor performance. And I believe the people of Maine also understand what's really driving it, which is some larger you know, economic and governance issues that, that we can talk about more.
I'm just so fascinated by the problems that you're having <laughs> and it's easy as an outsider, but it, to have utilities with the worst reliability in the nation and they are competing with, for example, PG&E in California, which has had wildfire induced outages and still to come in last is really saying something about that achievement in terms of reliability with the competition that they have across the country with some other serious issues. <laughs> It's impressive. It's impre- you know to do worse than PG&E, which went bankrupt twice in the last twenty years. You know, pled guilty to killing eighty-five customers in paradise. I mean, you, you really have to try <laughs> to be worse than them, and and yet they have they have succeeded. So let's talk a little bit about the legislation. So as I alluded, you know, the legislation passed the le- both houses of the legislature. It went to the governor. The governor has vetoed it at this point. So there's a bit of a stalemate there. Talk about what it would what it would have accomplished, though. If this bill had passed and had been signed by the governor, what changes would it have made? How would it have addressed these issues of reliability and customer satisfaction and cost? But maybe also some of these larger questions, larger battles that you'd been fighting around things like energy efficiency and rooftop solar. Yeah, great. You know, I've been researching this for quite a while because I became interested in utility business models in large part through the example of Green Mountain Power in Vermont. They are, in fact, investor-owned, but they're a B corporation. And that got me thinking, you know, what else is out there? And so as a, as a legislator, kind of just dipping my toe in, in those waters, I began to investigate further and became fascinated by the munis and the co-ops that are out there, you know, serving, you know, together. They serve one in, one in three Americans, right? And the munis have been around since, you know, the dawn of the electrical era, co-ops since, you know, the days of FDR. And they serve, you know, vast portions of the country. There are many that are quite large, the entire state of Nebraska, which, by the way, has the best reliability, while we have the worst. And, you know, the more I looked, the more I became fascinated and thought, well, you know, why, why are we not doing this? We also had a, a small consumer-owned utility here in Maine come forward, Kennebunk Light and Power, and, and they wanted to serve the rest of, of the town of Kennebunk, Maine. They serve most of it now, a couple other uh, parts, a couple, a couple other towns as well. They wanted to serve the rest of Kennebunk and they brought a bill to do that. And, and long story short, as hard as we tried in the legislature, we passed a bill, we thought we'd solve the problem. It, it, the problem wasn't solved. Central Maine Power managed to shut that down. They wanted to protect their captive customers at all costs, or rather protect the, the captivity of those customers at all costs. And to this day, Central Maine Power has, has prevented Kennebunk Light and Power from serving the people in town that want to be served by them. These small consumer utilities in Maine are far more reliable, have far better customer satisfaction, and far lower rates than our investor-owned utilities. And that same comparison holds true if you look across the country, especially at munis. You know, obviously co-ops are, are very, very rural and have some, some significant cost drivers, so it's a little hard to compare there. But here in Maine, the, invest, the two investor-owned utilities charge 58% more than our nine consumer-owned utilities, which serve part or all of 97 towns. 58% more, that's, that's a very significant thing, especially for our lower-income Mainers who you know, pay one in four of their meager dollars on energy. Very significant for our industrial sector. You know, we have businesses like paper mills are very traditional here. Our largest paper mill, you know, costs go up a penny per kilowatt hour, and they're paying two million more per year. We have a large shipbuilding facility here, Bath Ironworks, 
Costco up a penny per kilowatt hour, they're paying a million dollars more per year. So from the, the point of view of business, prosperity, and job creation, and certainly from the point of view of economic inequality, we've got to get this right if we're, if we're going to shift ourselves onto a total dependence on electricity. The, the plan is to electrify everything, right? That's how we decarbonize. The only way we decarbonize, really, is we electrify everything. We switch to electric vehicles. We switch to heat pumps to heat and cool our buildings. We switch to electricity to power our factories. And we make sure that that electricity is renewable. But the grid is a monopoly. The, the, the wires running down your streets have to be a monopoly. It's the only safe way to, to get it to you. You know, you can't have two sets of wires on the street. So that monopoly can be owned and controlled for the customers and by the customers or by and for someone else far away. And increasingly, you know, we've seen that that, that someone else is farther and farther away and, and less and less caring about the needs of the customers. So consumer ownership is proven nationally, you know, 13% lower rates, twice the reliability, far better customer satisfaction. If you're looking at, at munis in particular, which is what we propose. And our proposal is to create the Pine Tree Power Company, which would be a large municipal hybrid serving the 800,000 customers here in Maine who are currently served by investor-owned utilities. We would buy them out. The bill proposes a referendum component. So first it goes to the people. And once the people have ratified the proposal, we move forward with the process. The first step after ratification is another election where we elect the board of the utility. And that uh, seven-member elected board chooses some additional expert advisory members. They hire staff. They do some additional due diligence and business planning. And then they make their first move, of course, which is the initial offer to purchase the utility. That price is either negotiated or, if necessary, litigated. We have a process for that. And then once the switch is made, a private operator who is competitively contracted takes over the operations of the grid. So, you know, we've been working on this for three years. We're very excited about the opportunity that it presents to really put Mainers you know, in charge of our energy future, to, to have a democratic energy sector. That platform, that, that monopoly platform that, that delivers all of the solutions, whether they're efficiency or demand reduction or aggregated demand reduction, which is there's some fascinating opportunities once you involve the internet of things in our clean energy future, obviously, you know, more generation, obviously more storage. We need all of that. We need a, we need a huge competitive, innovative set of solutions to bring that clean energy to us. And the grid stands between us and those solutions. So, so having it be non-competitive, having it be not-for-profit, having it be democratically governed, it's, just, it's all incredibly important to making that democratic and affordable clean energy future possible. So I'm so glad that you covered a little bit more of that background. You know, a lot of the listeners of this ILSR podcast are not steeped in the energy system, and so it's great to give a little background to them about the unique structure of the electricity system. As you said, you know, it doesn't make sense to have multiple sets of wires strung to home. So it was decades ago that most states made utilities into monopolies formally. So we're, but we're at this really interesting moment in time right now where, you know, the U.S. Congress has recently advanced legislation to break up big tech companies because of what they're sort of commonly calling this platform monopoly problem. So as you alluded to in the electricity sector with the grid, if it's privately controlled, 
they've got to squeeze kind of on what can be done with the grid, right? Like rooftop solar or energy efficiency or other things. But the tech companies were talking about how these private companies, these big corporations have become sort of gatekeepers to the economy and roadblocks to competition and and to better service. Is that kind of a, do you see some similarities between the two of like the, the, the tech monopoly problem that Congress is trying to deal with at a federal level and what you're dealing with, with central main power and the other IOU that they've sort of become too big to be accountable? Absolutely. Yes. 100%. You know, there, there are a few differences, but, but they're, they're relatively nuanced differences. The too big to fail problem absolutely exists in the energy utility sector as well. And the total dependency. I mean, you know, if you're if you're a customer of Central Main Power, you have zero choice. It's not like where you can choose between Facebook and Twitter. <laughs> you know, you don't even have that. You've got Central Main Power or Central Main Power or Central Main Power, and they they will be your provider. And by the way, Central Main Power doesn't really exist. It is it is a, a fiction created by a much larger company. It is it is owned by Avantgrid, which is another fiction. It's it's a holding company established primarily to ask access tax benefits from the U.S. tax code. So it's a U.S.-based company. But Avantgrid is very purposefully 81.5% owned and wholly controlled by a larger company still called Iberdrola. Iberdrola, based in Spain, has many multinational shareholders. Uh, BlackRock is a big investor. The government of Qatar is a big investor through their uh, oil-based sovereign wealth fund. The government of Norway is another big investor through their oil-based sovereign wealth fund. And there are many others as well. But it is truly, it's Iberdrola that's, that, that, that holds uh, 640,000 people in Maine and, and businesses in Maine hostage to their priorities, which of course is, is profit. There is this this state regulator thing, right? We do have state regulators and they can exercise some control over rates. So I want to be clear that this is not the kind of monopoly that can that can absolutely wreak havoc unrestrained. But but let's remember too that state regulators were actually established by the utility industry. It was in the early 1900s when Samuel Insel, the heir to the Edison empire, decided that he was going to pitch to all of his colleagues and competitors at the National Electric Lighting Association annual meeting, the idea that they restrict themselves to fully monopoly territories. And in order to justify that monopoly in the age of antitrust, they said, we'll create state regulators. And we know that we will be able to work to do quite well within that model. We'll have guaranteed profits. Let's go out and do it. And, and they, they sure did. <laughs> they went out and they, they, they convinced legislatures across the country to create public utility commissions and public service commissions to quote unquote regulate. But for the last 120 years, they've basically rigged the regulatory system. And these state regulators are every day more and more puny uh, with respect to the, the massive multinational monopoly corporations which own and, and control these state-by-state utilities. So Maine's situation is, is very similar to, to the situation of others. Avangrid and Iberdrola own several other utilities here in the Northeast, for example. They're looking to buy a utility in New Mexico right now PNM, which is also in part of Texas, and they have some very big plans for that region. So 
yeah, there's a, there, there is a, an incredible consolidation that has happened in the industry. Maine is now 2%, less than 2% of Iberdrola's holdings. And our regulators are really the mouse with Iberdrola as the cat. The tables have turned if, if they ever were right side up to begin with. And the game of cat and mouse is, is inverted so that there's so many ways that they can escape meaningful regulatory intervention, whether it's by hiding the ball or by, you know, lawyering up and, and threatening to sue or clever, you know, engineering and, and uh, clever work of the tax code. They've, they've really got us right where they want us. And the only way we break free of that is to change the business model. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we discuss the option for competitive access to the grid under consumer ownership, the next steps for the campaign after the gubernatorial veto, and advice from Representative Barry for legislators in other states struggling with clean energy progress by their investor-owned utilities. You're listening to a Local Energy Rules rebroadcast of a Building Local Power interview with Representative Seth Barry, House Chair of the Maine Legislature's Joint Standing Committee on Energy, Utilities, and Technology, about legislation to transform Maine's electric utility market. Hey, thanks for listening to Local Energy Rules. If you've made it this far, you're obviously a fan, and we could use your help for just two minutes. As you've probably noticed, we don't have any corporate sponsors or ads for any of our podcasts. The reason is that our mission at ILSR is to reinvigorate democracy by decentralizing economic power. Instead, we rely on you, our listeners. Your donations not only underwrite this podcast, but also help us produce all of the research and resources that we make available on our website and all of the technical assistance we provide to grassroots organizations. Every year, ILSR's small staff helps hundreds of communities challenge monopoly power directly and rebuild their local economies. So please take a minute and go to ILSR.org and click on the Donate button. And if making a donation isn't something you can do, please consider helping us in other ways. You can help other folks find this podcast by telling them about it or by giving it a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The more ratings from listeners like you, the more folks can find this podcast and ILSR's other podcasts, Community Broadband Bits, and Building Local Power. Thanks again for listening. Now, back to the program. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about when we talk about this idea of platform monopoly, because you kind of alluded to this earlier, and so I want to just drill down a little bit. In the case of Amazon, for example, so this is a company that ILSR has put a lot of scrutiny to. They control this marketplace which is open to third-party sellers, so non-Amazon sellers. But as we have documented pretty well, Amazon has a lot of power over those sellers to compel them to use their own shipping services, their own warehousing services, et cetera, because they can simply demote somebody's listing and make it impossible for them to sell on their platform if they have control over it. One of the things you talked about earlier is the problem that we have in this era when we are trying to transform the grid system to address climate change to take advantage of all these clean energy opportunities is how utilities can act as a barrier to that. With the Pine Tree Power Company, with a consumer-owned utility, is the idea that it will similarly exercise that kind of monopoly control? Or is there an opportunity now where with this public utility, it can be more like the road system where there's lots of competitive delivery services like UPS and FedEx and whatnot? Are we going to see more of that should this ever be successful to transform grid ownership? Yeah, it's a great question, and it really does make an important point. There's actually more free market competition, not less, in the Pine Tree Power Company as we propose it, because 
as I mentioned earlier, the operations of the company will be contracted out. So right away you have a competitive bidding process where people are sharpening their pencil and competing. That contract would likely be, you know, between five and 10 years with perhaps an option to renew based on performance. But there you have competition where right now we have none. Central Main Power has an indefinite monopoly privilege on, on our, our power, both for the operations and the ownership. The solutions that will deliver much of the clean energy onto that monopoly grid are incredibly complex, fast moving. You know, there's, there's new technology coming along all the time to create opportunities to, to both reduce peak demand, which is, which is where, you know, the dirtiest and most expensive resources come online to provide, you know, efficiency, which is the cheapest and cleanest energy and to obviously bring a whole lot more renewable energy onto the grid, much of that decentralized, such as your rooftop solar. So how do we, in this fast-moving, innovative space, make sure that the utility, which everybody has to plug into, is not artificially creating roadblocks to certain kinds of resources, which reduce its profits because... By the way, important concept here, the utilities profit more when they build more. That is the fundamental truth of the U.S. investor-owned regulatory system. The more you build, the more you make. Because there were a couple of Supreme Court decisions uh, back in the 1920s and 1940s, the Bluefield decision in the 20s, the Hope decision in the 40s. Together, they basically said, look, we must reward capital investment. We, we have to pay, you know, if, if the utilities put in, if their shareholders put in, you know, X amount, then we're going to give them 12% return on X and build that into the rates. And that's how we've operated ever since. So this isn't something regulators can change. It's not something that state legislators can change. Even Congress can't change a decision of the Supreme Court, right? So we're stuck. And the utilities have perverse incentives just by virtue of doing their job, which is to maximize return to shareholders, they will say no or even you know, actively fight against certain innovative solutions, especially in the distributed space, especially those that, that reduce their ability to justify new overbuilding of the grid, new expenditures and big centralized systems, whether it's transformers or high voltage, very lucrative high voltage lines, substations, and in the case of, of utilities that own generation, you know, big new centralized plants. That's the, the traditional model they're comfortable with. Some of it, of course, is just institutional inertia where, you know, it's the way we've always done it and we're going to keep doing it that way. So we need, to, we need to shake up the system for that reason as well. But a lot of it is this perverse incentive and lack of democratic governance that really leads to these kinds of behaviors to prejudice the utilities against the kind of solutions that we're going to need for a just and equitable transition. I want to pivot back to talking about the future of this legislation and this effort to have a consumer-owned utility. So as I alluded to before, the legislation was vetoed by the governor and the legislature was not able to override that veto. There's a campaign called Our Power Maine that's organized around this legislation that the governor has vetoed. But as I understand it, the effort really isn't dead. And I should also just add as a way of disclosure that ILSR does have a fiscal agency relationship with Our Power Maine, which is to say our accounting department helps process their finances for a small fee. We're not intellectually or 
substantially involved in the campaign, but we are supporting it in that way. But tell me about how does how does our power remain? How how do you how is the fight continuing for consumer ownership of this utility? Yeah, well, our power has really become a powerful group. It's thirty statewide organizations, very grassroots, a lot of environmental interest because I think the environmental community uniquely is focused on the next thirty to fifty years, not the next you know three to five, which. A lot of uh, businesses and politicians are more focused on. That's been a huge source of support, but also increasingly those that are interested in, in demo, you know, governance reform and more democratic governance, those that are interested in economic equality and creating economic systems that are more equal. As we make this massive historic investment in our group, that is increasingly understood to be an opportunity to create a more equitable energy economy. So our power is going forward regardless. In Maine, we are very fortunate to have the ability to take a question directly to the voters to enact law by direct democracy. And we plan to do that. Maine has used this to good effect before in pioneering ranked choice voting, for example, first state in the nation to do that in creating a clean election system way back in the 1990s, which was a model for the nation, and leading on increasing the minimum wage. And we've, we've, we've really used it well. The, the bottle bill uh, way back in the 70s, if you remember, we, you know, we were the first state to put a five cent return on, on beverage containers. So we believe Maine is an optimal place because of the frustration with our utilities, because of their historic resistance to renewables, because of their just incredibly lackadaisical attitude towards improvement and of the frustration that you can, that's palpable across the state of Maine. We believe that, that Mainers will see the need to take back our power and to, to have a say in at this critical moment as we shift to clean energy and become dependent entirely on this monopoly grid. So we'll be collecting signatures this fall. The, our Power Coalition is very interested in collaboration and support with others, but we we are primarily just a entirely actually just a Maine-based coalition right now. We have a growing membership list, uh, people signing up at this moment to circulate petitions and gather signatures this fall. We plan to bring it to the voters in November of 2020. And there's a process that, that you have to go through leading up to that. You turn in the signatures, you get a hearing and yeah, at the state house, there's an opportunity for the legislature to vote. But our plan would be to get it, get it directly to the voters. And we're very confident that that will be possible and that the outcome will be favorable. And you said November 2022, is that right? That's right. Yeah. And the bill, the bill that we work, worked on this year, which was a pretty historic achievement in itself. We got a 10 to 2 report out of committee, bipartisan, strong majority vote out of committee. We got a majority in the House of Representatives with some Republicans joining in with mostly Democrats, a majority in the Senate with a similar kind of mix, bipartisan, but mostly Democrats. And then the governor, unfortunately, chose to veto the bill. And I appreciate this governor in many ways, but she was never really friendly to this. And even in her veto letter, didn't correctly name the bill. So it you know, indicated to us a, a, a bit of lack of, of, of attention and just lack of commitment to the issue, unfortunately. But, but we're hopeful that we can bring this forward. 
again to directly to the people and that's where often the the biggest boldest changes in main history at least have happened and we we want we want to be a proving ground for this concept nationally we hope that we can help to pave the way for others our goal by the way is is really to make maine the first state in the nation to get to 100% clean energy for all of our needs that's the larger overarching goal of our power but we believe also that it has these other collateral benefits you know democratic governance and economic equality and and, and by the way broadband as well which is easier to attach to poles the cost drivers are a bit lower so another huge need in our area it's been fun to work with you guys on broadband as well i'm very passionate about that work and i think that you know the, these things really intersect around the ownership of of the pole and wire networks yeah you wanted to say we've talked mostly about this bill and the struggle with the electric utility around this but broadband is in some ways very related that you have these large private institutions, often cable companies that are your service providers. Can you talk a little bit about how these two are going to intersect? These two issues are going to intersect. You already kind of alluded to the fact that now if we own the poles and wires for the electric system, we can use that to string fiber optic cable for broadband. But how else might they intersect? Maine is one of the states that is most desperately in need of of rural broadband. And even in the areas where cable is an option, for example, people are really being strangled by the, the prices. And the, the lack of truly powerful, you know, modern speed. What we should have is, is affordable, symmetrical gigabit service for all, in my view. And, and that, that's the kind of thing that will make a backwater economy like Maine's in, into a real leader and, and innovator in a vigorous economy. So our poles and wires are not just for electricity, as you stated, broadband connects to those poles too. Fiber is really the technology of the future. In my view, it is largely future-proof. The capacity of the fiber is still being understood. You know, they're developing new ways to deploy even more of the capacity of a single, single strand of fiber optic cable. You know, using each of the individual strands, using the, the the different colors of the spectrum, you know, within those fibers, and it all travels at the speed of light. So, municipal fiber networks, in my view, are incredibly important to the future. And this new entity, the Pine Tree Power Company, as a municipal, quasi-municipal electric network, will be very friendly, almost genetically. <laughs> in its very makeup to the concept of municipal ownership of broadband and can offer reduced costs for pole attachment, can be thoughtful about you know, how we manage the poles and administer the poles. Attachment is a huge portion of the cost for any broadband provider, whether for-profit or not-for-profit. If we can bring that pole attachment cost down, that will have a transformative effect. But we also really want to foster, as I mentioned, you know, more municipal networks. And I've been working very hard as the co-chair of the Broadband Caucus to make that possible. We have a fund set up. We did made some reforms to it. We recently got a lot of federal money. Communities across the country have received money, both at the municipal and the, and the, and the county level, for which broadband is an eligible expenditure. So this is an incredibly opportune time to be talking about that. And... It's not, a, it's not the same effort at this time, but these two efforts are really converging, I think, around what are the networks of our future going to look like. And they do come together 
you know, I mentioned earlier, the internet of things, they really come together there. There's, there's a need in managing an efficient and secure and environmentally sensitive energy network to have information flowing rapidly across the net so that dishwashers can come on when it's advantageous for them to come on or or not so that heating and cooling systems can be you know controlled in an aggregated way and there are massive implications around the security of our information around the opportunity there to bring down costs and make for a more equitable transition around democratic governance and transparency and how those decisions are made it, it is it is uh, i think an uncertain future but it's clearly where we're heading and we really need to make sure that there's democratic governance as we do move in that direction. One last thing I'll say is, as I mentioned, the utilities need to have communications infrastructure themselves. They are already stringing fiber on their poles for their own purposes to manage their own grids. And those fiber lines, as I mentioned, have incredible spare capacity. So there's no reason that some of that capacity couldn't be shared much more than it is today for the purpose of municipal fiber networks or other locally owned broadband utilities. So I'm very excited about that opportunity. And I think we haven't fully even begun to to understand just where all the opportunities are there, but we we know that there's gold in them there hills. Do you have any advice from the struggle to have a better electric utility and the legislation you've been working on. I was just thinking too about the way you were describing the history of the use of the ballot in Maine to bring about other progressive outcomes that are widely supported. And you mentioned a clean election bill. And as I was thinking about that, I was remembering recently that activists in Virginia in their advocacy work around clean energy had similarly used a pledge to get legislative candidates to pledge not to take money from the very utilities that they oversee through the legislature, these these private companies. I guess one of the questions I have is just, are you already insulated from that because of the kinds of election bill that you have? But then what other advice would you have for folks in other states who are probably confronting similar issues where they have these incumbent investor-owned utilities that are very large, they might be owned multinationally and maybe are not providing the best service or the best outcomes for their customers? It's a great question, and my answer might be a little selfish here, but first let me say about, about clean elections, yes, absolutely yes. I would not have run for legislature without clean elections, and I don't think that I would have been as able to really focus on what was right for the people of the state as opposed to what I could get away with and still get reelected were it not for the existence of our nationally leading clean election system. So there's no question that clean elections here in Maine has, has made not just me, but, but other legislators as well, much more capable of doing the right thing. And I think you saw that in the, in the votes. The, the legislature, the majority got elected through the clean election system. No governor of Maine has yet been elected through the clean election system. It, it, it tends to fall down a little bit there. And I don't think that the governor vetoed it simply because she was looking for campaign donations. But I do think the power of the lobby in the executive branch in Maine has continued to be stronger than it is at the legislative level. So yes, clean elections matters. And, and Maine is in this incredibly unique place to prove the concept and to really you know, change the game for the nation. I'm 
absolutely convinced that if we can do it here in Maine, that it will be the shot heard around the world, that, that, that folks in other parts of the country will have a model that they can point to, as we did with ranked choice voting, by pioneering that. You know, we're, we're now seeing many other parts of the country take that on and, and look to go in that direction. I think in general, there's a perception right now, a, a misperception that consumer ownership of our utilities is impossible. In some cases, people have bought the idea that we can regulate our way to address transition. I don't believe that's true. In other cases, I think people are just tired and feel like, you know, feel beaten down and feel like there's not been a successful model where, where this is done. And, and I want to offer some hope to folks that may feel that way. If you look at the six in the nation that arrived at 100% renewable electricity first, those six places were all served by consumer-owned utilities. I can name them for you. Georgetown, Texas, Greensburg, Kansas, Burlington, Vermont, Aspen, Colorado, Kodiak, Alaska, and Rockport, Missouri. Four of those, by the way, conservative areas, conservative communities that got to 100% renewable electricity first. And you know what, <laughs> John, this is gonna blow your mind. All six of those are served by consumer-owned utilities, all six. And what are the chances of that? You know, as I mentioned, COUs only serve one in three Americans, right? So the chances are pretty astronomical that all six of the first communities to get to 100% would be consumer utilities. But there it is. Those, those six were the first. All of them before 2016, by the way, before Trump was even elected. And, and look at large utilities. Look at the nation's leading large utility in the race to 100% renewables. It's SMUD, it's the Sacramento Municipal Utility District. And don't you love that name, SMUD? It just has a ring to it. SMUD is, uh, has seven elected board members. It has um, you know, a pretty large catchment area, 1.5 million customers, many of them in, in rural parts you know, outside of Sacramento, a couple different counties. They're gonna get to 100% renewables by 2030. And, I, and this isn't a goal, this isn't aspirational. They, they, are, they have a plan, they're actually, you know, clear that they will get there. And that is the kind of game-changing leadership that we need. Now, SMUD and those other six, you know, communities I mentioned, they already had consumer ownership. They didn't have to fight for it like, like we do. But if Maine can actually, first state since Nebraska in the 1930s to actually change the whole business model of the state to 100% consumer-owned utilities, and, and through that, to, to have democratic governance, to get to a just and rapid transition. We believe Maine can be the first state to get there with this business model. Then I think that's going to bring hope to others as well. You know, we're, we're going down a path that is understood. You know, these other communities have done it, but to do it with the, the change of a business model, to do it with an with a actual breakup of the rigged regulatory monopoly system that we have now, and to take back our power. That is what we're proposing to do here in Maine. We need support because I'm gonna tell you right now, the Edison Electric Empire, there's a, there's a large trade association called EEI. They're very concerned, they're watching, they're listening to this podcast. You know, they're, they're, they're getting ready to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to oppose our effort. And we believe we can stand up to that. You know, we've seen communities stand up to that kind of pressure before. I mentioned Winter Park, Florida, Jefferson County, Washington. You know, this can be done. But on this scale, at this time, 
for all the reasons we've talked about, the stakes could not be higher. And we really would, would love to have support from other parts of the country. If folks want to get in touch, they can go to ourpowermain.org and check it out, sign up, uh, donate. We're going to need all of that and then some. Move to Maine, help us collect signatures. You know, it's a great place to live in the wintertime. <laughs> and we're, we're, what I hope for uh, from others is that you can help us, yes, but also that we can help you. We really want to be an example and be, uh, you know, they, they talk about the states as the crucibles of democracy, right? You know, opportunities to, to innovate and to try new policies and, and see what works. And, and we think that Maine can really be an important opportunity to, to learn and potentially to learn about a transformative path that, that, that more communities and states can take in the near future. Well, Seth, thank you so much for coming on and sharing the work that you've been doing in Maine and the importance of it in the broader anti-monopoly movement, but especially in the electricity sector where we're trying to confront this large and significant problem of climate change, which, you know, you might want to be advertising people should move to Maine to stay cool in the summer as well as to have a pleasant winter. <laughs> it's warming up. It is definitely warming up. And, and I have to say uh, the pandemic has, has boosted Maine's economy quite a bit, a lot of Housing prices are through the roof. You know, everybody's moving out to the country and Maine is seeing that at spades. But it, it really is a wonderful place, all, all four seasons. I'm sure many of your listeners visited already, but I think it's going to be a great place to keep an eye on in the, the months and years to come. Well, we will be keeping our eye on it. And thank you again so much for joining us, Seth. All right, John. Thanks for all your great work. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Local Energy Rules with Representative Seth Barry of Bodenham, Maine about the bill and ballot campaign to transform the state's monopoly investor-owned electric utilities to consumer ownership. On the show page, look for links to Our Power Maine, a copy of the legislation, Bill 1708, and the Supreme Court cases referenced by Seth that set the standard for utility compensation. On ILSR's website, you can also find several other interviews touching on utility monopoly power, including an interview on utility antitrust policy with Gene Sue in early 2021, a discussion of utility mergers with Scott Hempling in the summer of 2020, and a discussion of power plant securitization with Leslie Glustrom in January 2021. Local Energy Rules is produced by myself and Maria McCoy, with editing provided by audio engineer Drew Birschbach. Tune back into Local Energy Rules every two weeks to hear more powerful stories of communities taking on concentrated power to transform the energy system. Until next time, keep your energy local, and thanks for listening.